Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 to the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 25. Go ahead and turn there and have your Bibles prepared, and let's all stand for the reading of God's word. Listen carefully. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. And warned the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. On May 26, 2006, Uh, A man named Chad South entered the home of Daniel Ott in the city of Burton Township, Ohio. And there he shot Daniel Ott dead. Now, South was a hitman hired by another person, a man named Joe Rosenbrook. And he was hired because Ott had kind of double-crossed this guy and sent him to jail. So in revenge, Rosenbrook hired South to kill Daniel Ott. The only problem was South killed the wrong Daniel Ott. It turns out that there are two Daniel Otts in the state of Ohio, and South had killed the wrong one. Now, here was an unfortunate and a tragic case of mistaken identity. And I fear the same thing can happen when it comes to God. Many can have a mistaken identity when it comes to God, and the result is far more profound, with far-reaching consequences, eternal consequences, far more tragic than simply life or death. Uh, We can talk about God sometimes in the classroom or on the playground and maybe with a neighbor. 
We, can, we talk about God at a football game, perhaps. He's mentioned in a lot of post-game interviews, if you see these players interviewed. He's always mentioned and brought up at the Oscars. But who or what they mean by the word God is really anyone's guess. Uh, they might be using the same name, but with quite, someone quite different in mind. Not conceiving of or experiencing the same God. At least not in the way that God reveals himself in our passage this morning. I have to imagine that most people, when they talk about God, do not think of a God that's like the God here in Exodus 19. So what does Mount Sinai teach us about God? What does Mount Sinai point us to about God? Now, if you've been with us through the book of Exodus, you'll recall that God has rescued Israel out of Egypt. He set them free, but this freedom is for something. It is so that they may worship God. And last week we saw that Israel arrives at Mount Sinai to meet God, but, but Israel needed to get ready to meet him. They needed to be prepared to meet their maker. They couldn't simply waltz into his presence, and so for three days... They consecrate themselves. They set themselves apart. And they wash their clothes. They abstain from sex. They prepare their hearts and minds to avoid anything that might distract them from giving full and complete attention to God. Meanwhile, for public safety, Moses marks out a perimeter around Mount Sinai. When God descended, the whole mountain would become consecrated. It would become holy. It would not be safe for the people to ascend the mountain. For even touching the mountain would mean death. But now three days have passed as we take up our passage. The Israelites are as ready for God as they ever will be. And anxiously they await their king. And they're sitting there. And you can see as the day gets closer and closer, what the, you know, they're in camp. And maybe they're just anxiously looking up at the mountain wondering... What's going to happen when he comes? What's it going to be like when God meets with us? Now, they might have some inkling of that already, but God does come right on schedule, verse 16 says, on the third day. Even in God's descent to Mount Sinai, there are things to learn about who he is. And so what does Mount Sinai point us to about God? First, Mount Sinai points us to an awesome God. Mount Sinai points us to an awesome God. We have in verse 16 through 20 what theologians call a theophany. A theophany, which means a God appearing. Uh, It's a manifestation of God that is tangible to the human senses. Now, when God makes his presence known, it's not so much a a portrait that you can draw of God. Uh, He's something to behold, something to to feel. Uh, You can't really draw God. He's invisible. And so, you know, the Vatican has it all wrong. The Sistine Chapel and Michelangelo has it all wrong. When he draws a picture of some old man and who's, you know, kind of jacked and, you know, with muscles, with this long beard and pointing and touching Adam, that's not what God looks like because God doesn't look like that. He is invisible. When God shows himself in the Bible, 
It's both fascinating and frightening. A mix of sights and sounds and smells. In Genesis 3.15, he has already appeared as a smoking fire passing through torn animals. In Exodus 3, a burning bush. Chapter 13 of Exodus, he's been a, a, a pillar of fire and cloud. And here in Exodus 19, we see something similar, though far, far more dramatic. Never before, and I would say never after, does God manifest himself to the gathered display of his people with such a spectacular display as this. And you know why? Because God is coming down and he's about to preach. He's about to preach and give them the law. And Mount Sinai is his pulpit. And each of these natural phenomena reveals a different aspect of God's character. There's thunder and lightning atop Mount Sinai speaking to God's unrivaled power. It's, it's one thing to kind of examine thunder and lightning. You can know all the science about thunder and lightning, and there's these electric things happening. I don't know. There's something more scientific than that, something about discharges, electrical discharges, imbalances, storm clouds, something happens, and then there's some distance. And so lightning, thunder, right? But none of that science really matters if you've ever been in a storm like that. (laughs) Have you ever been in a storm like that? In a storm that's charged with lightning, booming with thunder, it's really something else to behold. We don't understand, when we were just singing about rolling thunder, we don't understand what that's like here in California. We don't. Uh, Once I was out in Minneapolis, I was standing outside, waiting to catch a taxi, clear day, and all of a sudden, you see these clouds rolling in, and it's this little bit of thunder you can hear just across the way, and it literally just comes in like a blanket covering the sky. Now, the sky dimmed that day, and it started raining, and then suddenly, the sky flashed, and then there was boom. Immediately, I couldn't count in between, you know, you usually count between, oh, how far away is it? You couldn't count. It was a flash and boom. And I'll tell you, I'll admit to you, I jumped. And so did all the other people around me, even though we were trying to kind of walk it off like we were kind of cool about it. And we all kind of moseyed a little closer to the shelter that we were next to. In that moment, it doesn't matter what scientific knowledge you have about thunder and lightning and how it works. You get an affecting sense of God's greatness, its power, its might, its majesty. It's awful, full of awe. And this is what the Israelites must have felt, except that this storm does not pass through. It comes and it stays on Mount Sinai, flashing, booming the whole time they are there. An ominous thick cloud descends. A sign of mystery showing that there are aspects of God that cannot be penetrated. You cannot know the depths of God. Now, God is certainly knowable. He reveals himself to us. It's why we open the Bible every day. It's why we open the Bible every Lord's Day. Because God is knowable, but we will never know God exhaustively. He is from eternity past. He is without beginning and he is without end. And here the Lord envelops this mountain with thunder, lightning, thick gloom. And then a very loud trumpet blast comes forth, signaling the coming of a king. 
a sign telling the people that they can now approach the mountain. Now, earlier in verse 13, God says, you can approach the mountain when the trumpet blasts, and so the people begin to gather. And Mount Sinai is wrapped in smoke, it says, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, like a chimney. The phrase, like the smoke of a kiln, is used only one other time in the Old Testament, in Genesis 19.28, in reference to the the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So here was a sign of God's holiness. Here was a sign of God's judgment, of his bright and burning purity, his, his power, his unrivaled strength. In the first few months of the pandemic, you might have remembered what life was like here in the Bay Area. Thunder and lightning filled the sky. I remember looking out at the night sky, seeing the thunder and seeing the lightnings, and it set off fires all over the land. People wore masks, not because of COVID, but because of the ash that was in the air. Smoke was everywhere. It rained ash. The sky turned orange. And that is just a a smidgen of what's happening here at Mount Sinai. People felt, oh, it's, it's the apocalypse. Jesus is coming. This is what is happening there at Mount Sinai. And God makes this mountain his own personal volcano. Constant flashes of lightning blazing with fire, belching and billowing smoke, radiating in intense and menacing heat, all of it violent, all of it furious. And amidst the constant blasts and the boom and the thunder, there's this trumpet sound that gets louder and louder and louder. Because why? Because God is coming closer and closer and closer. This is a pyrotechnic display from God, which will happen again throughout Scripture. Not quite in the same way, but when the tabernacle is finished, the smoke of the Lord's presence fills the holy place. Earlier, we read from our call to worship Isaiah 6, when he has this vision of the Lord and smoke and the train of his robe. In 1 Kings 19, at Mount Sinai again, Elijah, a God appears to Elijah in a whirlwind, in an earthquake, in a fire. When Jesus dies, what happens? The earth quakes and darkness falls upon the land. When Jesus ascends, violent winds, what happens? Violent winds and tongues of fire come upon at, Pe- at Pentecost. And in Revelation 4, there's a picture of God on the throne with flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, as we just sung as well. And see how Israel responds in verse 16. It says they trembled. Philip Ryken writes, understandably, the Israelites were overwhelmed with fear. The mountain looked scary. It sounded scary. And it felt scary. Hebrews 12 tells us that even Moses trembled with fear. Now think about that for a minute. Moses, who met God in the burning bush. Israel, who's who's met God as a pillar of fire and cloud. All of them knowing in one sense that they're safe. All of them knowing in one sense that they're still God's precious people, and yet they tremble in fear. Even the mountain, it says, trembled greatly. When the Creator comes, creation itself 
cannot support the weight of God, the glory of God. Creation quails and cracks under his presence. And it's like Jesus saying in the Gospels, if these were silent, if people were silent, the very stones would cry out. We're almost given this picture of how the inanimate world knows enough to bow and quake before its maker. And I wonder, when was the last time that you trembled? Trembled in the presence of the Lord? Have you ever broken down in tears over your sin? Sung with exuberant praise because of God's glory and grace. Or rendered speechless, staggered at the sight of his beauty or majesty. Do we tremble? Do we understand there to be in the presence of the holy, the God of the universe? It's why we go to places like Yosemite Valley. And why those, those, those mountains are called cathedrals. It's why we stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and or look up at the stars and our hearts say, what is man that you are even mindful of him? Because it's grandeur. It's power. Now, some of you I know are asking, that's cool, Pastor Steve, but I've got things to do. I've got my challenges. I've got my trials. Things are going hard in my life right now. I have renovations in my home that I need to uh, finish. I have children to train. Maybe some of you are just saying, I got Pokemon to collect. You know, I just can't tremble all day, Pastor Steve. And there's a lot to say, but let me leave you with this. The grandeur of God pulls our focus up and away from ourselves. Listen to what John Owen writes. He says, a due contemplation of the glory of, God, of Christ will restore and compose the mind. It will lift the minds and hearts of believers above all the troubles of this life and is the sovereign antidote that will expel all the poison that is in them, which otherwise might perplex and enslave the soul. Oh, you think you have something perplexing and enslaving your soul. Part of that answer is to know that you have an awesome God. We wonder at being great, at being greater than us, and we diminish and we develop a taste for something other than ourselves. We get to contemplate the glory of God that will bring the right and the bigger, the healthier, and I would say happier perspective in all the things that we go through. Mount Sinai points us to an awesome God. Second, Mount Sinai points us to an unapproachable God. You notice that in verse 17, that Moses brings the people out of the camp to meet God, and they take their place at the foot of the mountain. But then in verse 21, the Lord says, okay, Moses, come up here, and then immediately says, now go back down. Okay, you 80-year-old man climbing up and down this mountain. Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate them themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Now, if you think about it, this whole passage 
in chapter 19 seems a little strange. I mean, what's supposed to happen right now? God says, bring up the people of the mountain. When the trumpet sounds, bring them, bring them to the mountain. And you're thinking, okay, come up, come up the mountain. And then God warns them, tell them not to break through. Warn them, go back down. Now, there are two understandings of what is happening here in this mountain. Now, one is by theologian John Salehammer, and he's kind of the main proponent of this. And he says that Moses is supposed to lead the people up the mountain. They're supposed to go and meet with God. But the people kind of chicken out. Essentially, the Israelites stop short of what God wants them to do. They disobey, and as a result of their lack of faith, God says, here's the Ten Commandments to help you more. Okay? But I think, and many other commentators seem to agree, that the better understanding is that Israel is meant only to come up to the foot of the mountain and not up into the mountain, as it says in uh, verse 12. God says in verse 12, don't go up into the mountain, Verse 13 says, just go up to the mountain. What's more, it seems that there are three zones when it comes to Mount Sinai. When it comes to Mount Sinai. The first zone is at the top of the mountain, where only Moses is allowed to go and stand before God. Then there's a second zone, that's the middle zone, and that seems to be allowed for the priests, and we're going to see that later, and the elders, who can come up to the mountain in this middle zone of the mountain. And the third zone is the very bottom, which is the foot of the mountain, which is where Israel can come to. And scholars have made the connection that these three zones actually reflect the tabernacle that they will build, eventually build. The Holy of Holies is the first zone in the very center, permitted only by the high priest. Then there's the holy place, which is permitted for the priests who consecrate themselves. And then there's the outer portions, the outer court for the common Israelites. So the various boundaries of Mount Sinai is actually a reflection of the tabernacle that they're about to build. Now, the issue at stake here is not that God is a fussy monarch, that he's stuffy, and that he doesn't think enough honor has been shown to him, so you have to kind of go through these hoops. No, God is warning Israel, you do not begin to comprehend my holiness, all the dimensions of my holiness Do not draw near lest I break out against you. You try to break into me and I will break out against you and you will perish and that is death. You'll die. You come before God unworthy, unprepared, unbidden. You will face the death penalty. The priests, even then, they had to be consecrated and they could only go so far. It gives a lot of meaning to Psalm 24 that says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That's why Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. God is unapproachable. Verse 23, Moses says to God, the people cannot come up to a mountain. Look at this protest from Moses. For you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. I think what Moses, what's going on here is that Moses is kind of annoyed with God. Just a little bit. I think he has a little bit of eye roll here. And then he's saying, God, you already said this. You said this so many times. You don't need to say it again. I've already set up the signs. People aren't going to come up. 
But the Lord says for a third time, unpersuaded, saying, go. And it's emphatic there in the Hebrew, go down. And come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Now, it seems hardly necessary for God to repeat the warning. Isn't one warning enough? Why is God nagging? But I think God understands the human condition more than we do. He understands human curiosity and rebellion. Perhaps some would assume, okay, God's here now. The boundary markers, it's over. Perhaps someone has satisfied their curiosity. You know, they just kind of want to get in on the excitement of the moment. And still others might feel that they're at liberty to ignore the bounds, to ignore the way that God has made for you to approach him. They say, I'll make my own way up the mountain. Humans are like that, aren't they? Uh, This past year, I went to Yellowstone with my family, and the highlight of our trip was seeing a steamboat geyser erupt. It's the world's tallest active geyser. It makes Old Faithful look just pitifully old. Water surges from two vents, and water is expelled 300 feet into the air. It lasts for 40 minutes. The ground trembles, and the sound is so loud next to the geyser that you can't hear yourself talk. That's what it's like. And you get there, and you're just like, "Uh uh-uh. I'm not messing with this. That's why there are barriers and fences saying, stay on the boardwalk. Do not get near. Signs are posted up. But six years ago, a 23-year-old man at Yellowstone, it's always these 20-year-olds, ignored all the signs saying, oh, look at me. I walked off the boardwalk, got near the basin, falls in, and dies. You think humans are not foolish saying, I will make my own way? God knows how difficult it is, it is for us to grasp the vast distance between a holy God and an unholy people. He knows how foolish and obstinate and prideful we really can be. So he repeats to Moses, don't touch, ignore who I am and you'll die. God is unapproachable. You can only draw near at his initiative at the term he sets by the means he provides. And some of you might think, oh, this is just Old Testament religion. This is the Old Testament God. This is unapproachable stuff. That's not God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me give you a quote from Jesus. He says, no one comes to me. Oh, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me through me. One of the things we do at our church is that in our membership interviews, we usually ask people to share the gospel. And more often than not, people explain the gospel under four main titles, God, man, Christ, response. If you're new to Christianity, maybe you've heard something similar to that. Maybe you've heard the story about the bridge to God. Here's God who created us, And who is absolutely holy. And here's man, fallen man, sinful man, broken man. And their sin has divided them from God. There's this great gulf between God and man. And the only way you can bridge this gulf, how do you bridge this gulf? Is the bridge. The bridge is Jesus Christ. And what Jesus does when he comes on earth 
is when he dies on the cross, he is the mediator. He is the one that takes God in one hand and humanity in the other and brings them together. Because he takes your sins away and he gives you his righteousness. And that is true. That is absolutely true. That is the central message of the gospel. Yet I don't know how many people really feel or believe that there is a gulf between them and God. Many think, yeah, God, you know, God wants to be in a relationship with me. You know, God is just like me. He helps me. And instead of being made in the image of God, we make God into our image. We don't have a sense that God is dangerous, that he's majestic, that he's transcendent, he burnt, that, that he burns in bright and furious holiness, and that it is a fearful thing to, ha- to fall into the hands of the living God. We must have a conviction of sin. Not just a fleeting sense of, ah, I did something bad, nobody's perfect, but a profoundly deep impression that I'm not the way I ought to be. My sins are not mistakes, but they are an offense to an almighty God, an infinitely knowing, infinitely holy God. You know, sometimes we have the question, how could God possibly save some and not others? Or maybe we ask the question, how can God allow bad things to, to happen in this world? And I think those are honest questions. Those are difficult questions. Real questions. But the question that comes more plainly from more passages of Scripture is, how can God, who is good and holy, even dwell with people who are not? Why does he save anyone? Why do good things happen to anyone? God is awesome and unapproachable. That's what Mount Zion points us to. That God is awesome and unapproachable. But we cannot end there. Third and lastly, Mount Mount Sinai points us to another mountain. Mount Sinai points us to Mount Zion. And you're thinking, what? Well, turn into your New Testament to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. Hebrews is, uh, you kind of get into your New Testament, you pass all the, all the ones, all the books that start with T, the letter T, and then you kind of get right there to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, turn there, and let's look beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The author of Hebrews says the experience of Sinai is fearful with a voice so terrible that people begged it to stop. And then he contrasts this with Christianity on this side of the cross. He says, but you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. 
and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now listen to verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mount Sinai has been superseded by Mount Zion. God has visited us, not now, not just in smoke, in flame and fire, but as God who can be touched, seen, and crucified. And the point that Hebrews is making is not, okay, you guys just need to relax. That's not what his point is. The great difference between Mount Sinai, Sinai and Mount Zion is not that God was awesome then and he's not awesome now. It's not that the scene is fearful and that he's not fearful now. The great difference between Sinai and Zion is that there is this mediator. This mediator has made a way. The God-man Jesus Christ, perfect in holiness, power, love, and purity, and all who are in Christ, all who have trusted in him, repented, and placed their trust in him, are united to him in such a way, by faith, that they can approach God. In the Old Covenant, only the mediator went alone up into the mountain. It was only Moses that could get up to the top. Everyone else had to watch and wait. But in the new covenant, your union with Christ, you can ascend the holy mountain of God. That question in Psalm 24, who will ascend? All those in Christ will ascend the holy hill. Don't you see that this doesn't decrease our awe, but it only increases it. That this awesome God would send his only son and redeem you so that you can now freely come before him. If you're not a Christian today, I ask that you come before this awesome God, not with a fear that flees away from him, but with a fear that draws near to him in Christ. We should all stagger before him, bowed in praise and faith, with a happy fear before our Lord and God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this reminder of who you are. Over these past several weeks, we have been reminded not only of who you are, but also who we are. And Father, we pray that as your people, that we would have a right fear of you, a fear that does not flee, but a fear that falls facing toward you, that we would rejoice and tremble each day because we know that you have made us and you have redeemed us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.